Friends, can we just give the Lord a hand? Now, we're going to give another group of people a hand, too, and it should not be louder than the first first one, okay? But I don't know about y'all, but were y'all in here when they played the drummer boy? And I'm like, was that fantastic or what? Like, what a... Just a fantastic team of musicians on both campuses that just, they, they rock it every single week. And we don't say thank you enough, but thank you guys and gals for all of your contribution um, to that. Hey, we are in week two of a series called Better Together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter one. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to dive in there uh, real quickly just to kind of prep you. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, just a couple of uh, a couple of things. One, I'm going to show you four lessons we can learn from the book of Nehemiah and him in particular, and then I'm going to give you two challenges today. Four lessons, two challenges, and hope that you'll stay with me. I guess if you don't like it, you've got stones in your hand, and you can just kind of start chunking them out to get the message. Um, and so if, if it comes to that, then we'll, we'll know we need to start praying, okay? I uh, hope that many of you have been praying. I would say this week we have been praying as a team. I've personally just been praying for you, for our church, um, that God would unite us in ways um, that we've never seen before. And I pray that he would do that through each and every one of us, and we'll dive in so that we see these four lessons that Nehemiah desires to teach us. If you remember last week, you're in the year 445 B.C. Uh, by the time we kind of moved to where we are in this message, you're at 444 B.C., Nehemiah, who was living in the citadel or the capital city, Susa, with King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the Persian king in the 20th year of his reign. When he sees that Nehemiah is sad, he says, hey, Nehemiah, what's up? Nehemiah says, hey, my, my home is in ruins. Now, Nehemiah wasn't born there, but his people were there. And he knew as a person of Israel that the walls were torn down and he had to do something about it. And so he asked Artaxerxes, the Persian king, can I go back home? And he leaves the place in Susa, travels 900 miles, oversees the city, looks at it, uh, makes a plan, and then he goes to the people. And this is what he says in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Then I said to them, meaning the people, the men and the laborers there in Israel, he goes, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And then I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So not only do you have an earthly king in Artaxerxes who's helped prepare a way, but you have a heavenly king who says, I'm gone before you. And so Nehemiah knows that. He tells the people, they say, let's, let's start this work. Let's do it. And they put their hands to a good work. Now, the deal is, is that you would think, okay, that's, that's great. They put their hands to a good work. But the, the challenge is, is that if you look at the very next line, it says, but. So here it is. He oversaw a plan. He goes, hey, let's put our hands to a great work. They strengthen their hands for that great work. And as soon as they do that, here comes the first challenge. In verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite, the servant and uh, Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, hey, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? In essence, they, they come and they go, hey, what, what are you doing? You're putting your hand to work. You're going to start rebuilding. Does the king even know about this? Like, like are, are you, you're going against our own government? 
And then they said this, or Nehemiah replies, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Man, what courage, what resolve. He looks in the eyes and says, hey, look, this isn't your land. The God of Israel gave it to us. It's our land. It's our right. It's our walls that are in rubble. Hey, we have the right to build it. Hey, back off. And you would think, well, that's, that's how it works, right? But that's not how it works. I mean, remember like being on the playground and, and you got somebody that's kind of pushing you around a little bit? Anybody remember? Some of you were like, yeah, I was the guy pushing people around a bit. Uh, so if that was you, either way, there's a message in this for all of us. Um, when you have that little playground quarrel going on, there's some things that work there. And, and what I want you to see is, is when you have a quarrel and then there's somebody that pushes back, look what happens next. In chapter 4, you see it in, in verse 1. It says, Now when Samballot heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And then he jeered at the Jews. So it goes from, hey, you're not going to do this, to, yes, I am, to now it goes to name-calling. Matter of fact, he jeers, and he goes, uh, in the presence of his brothers and an army of Samaria, he goes, hey, what are you, what are you feeble Jews doing? Hey, uh, he basically starts calling them weak ones. He goes, oh, you're going to restore it for yourselves? Like, you're going to do this yourself? And then they ask the question, are you, you're going to sacrifice? You're, you're going to finish this all up in a day? Like, okay, great. You got, you got your people together? Oh, you're going to take the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, the burned ones too? So what are you doing? And then you got Tobiah the Amorite. You've always got the tag along that doesn't necessarily have the same lines that everybody else does, but they have some lines. And look what he says. He goes, I laugh at this because I can just see it playing out. He goes, oh, you're going to start building the wall and a fox, a fox crawls up on top of it and it's going to fall down? And I'm like, good one, dude, good one. Like that's, that's the best you got? But here's how it happens on the playground, right? Like there's a little bit of jeer, a little bit of squabbling. Nehemiah goes, no, we're doing it. Then all of a sudden, a little group of people get together and they start jeering. And that's usually how it happens. The bully's got his little posse of friends. They start kind of jeering. Y'all know how it goes. But here's the deal. What is it that finally puts that to rest? Like what, what puts all that bullying, that playground stuff, to the rest. Well, look, here's what I want you to realize. It's when somebody realizes lesson number one. And here's lesson number one. Every great work of God will face opposition. Like it's when you know that. Like it's when you know that there are going to be challenges. And you're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, there's seven times that you're going to see opposition. This is not going to be the first time for Nehemiah. Matter of fact, it hasn't been the first time. As they start building the wall, you see these guys continue to show up. You see Sanballat and Tobiah, they keep coming. And this isn't the first time. But here's what I want you to realize. You and I can never control anyone else's response. You and I are powerless almost to control our own response, let alone try to worry about somebody else's. And one of the things that I realize about Nehemiah that sets him apart from most every leader in the world, including me, is that he has a, not only a resolve, but he is not easily moved or swayed. He is not tossed back and forth. And friends, I'll tell you, I am easily tossed sometimes. But if you look at Nehemiah, he has a great Resolve, and he knows that opposition is going to come in a variety of forms. Sometimes it comes, and, and it's somebody that 
that you love and trust and they say something hurtful. Sometimes it comes in the form of people who you don't know at all and they have hurtful things to say. And listen, we live in a day and age where today you feel opposition in ways you didn't even 20 years ago. I don't know if y'all realize this, there's this thing called social media. Might be Satan's best work in the world. But how many times do you see the opposition taking place right before your eyes? Crude comments, sneering, jiving. I mean, just all types of people hopping on. And listen, how many people does it take to start opposition? One. How fast will they hop on to the opposition? Can I get a witness? (laughs) Fast, right? And here's what I want you to realize. Every great work of God and every godly leader knows that opposition's coming. But here's the deal. It's what you do with it that matters. You cannot control the kid on the playground, but you can control your response. Matter of fact, look at Nehemiah. He's got name calling. They're questioning his motives, why they're going to build a wall, whether or not they'll be successful in building the wall. The wall's not going to be strong enough. A fox could just overrun it. And then look what he does in verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. He begins to pray. He begins to pray. That's his response. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not always my first response. And I would imagine a bunch of the rednecks, hillbillies in this room, that's probably not your first response. I mean, he, but he doesn't cuss at them. He doesn't, he doesn't jeer at them. He doesn't draw back his fist. He didn't, he didn't bow up. He didn't, he didn't go toe-to-toe, chest-to-chest. He starts praying, and he says, Lord, turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Hey, do not cover their guilt. Hey, don't let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the, the presence of the builders. Which is an amazing thing. This, if God calls you to a great work, which we established last week, he has called us to a great work, anyone who opposes it is not opposing you. They are opposing a great God. And when you can remind yourself that the opposition has nothing to do with you, it reminds you of even the words of Jesus in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayers. He's praying for his disciples. He knows that they're going to be hated because he was hated. But when people oppose you in a great work, they're opposing a holy God. And if they're opposing a holy God, and even though you face some opposition, you have nothing to be afraid of. Matter of fact, I love his response. He prays, and then in verse 6 says, and so we built the wall. Lord, you do what you want with them. We're getting back to the work. So I can almost imagine it. The guys are on the playground. They came. They say their little piece. Nehemiah goes, hey, boys, huddle up. They pray for them. Lord, would you smite them? Move them out of our way. And then, hey, boys, okay, get back to your jobs. And they build the wall. Like, that seems so easy, doesn't it? And then it says, and all the wall was joined together half its height, for the people had a mind to do the work. Like they were focused, right? Which brings me to lesson number two. God's work requires focus and full devotion. In the midst of opposition, you have a chance. Am I going to keep my eyes on the opposition? Or am I going to keep my eyes on what I've been called to? Nehemiah says, hey, boys, get back to building. Now in chapter three, which we conveniently skipped over because it's a lot of names and clans and all of that. And it would have taken us an hour to read it. And I can't pronounce most of the names in there anyway, so I'd embarrassed myself. What you see is 50 different men, tribes, different people, and they are all taking part of the, of the wall. But one of the phrases that I noticed as I was reading through that is the phrase that the, you continue to see side by side. And so they built the wall, 
and side by side, they built the wall. And you just see this collective effort, a collective effort to bring the wall up to half its height. So here it is. They are literally side by side, different people groups working every hour of every minute of every day, and they continue to have full focus and full devotion. And when they have that same mission, the wall starts going up. And when it gets to half its height, guess who's going to come? The opposition. Matter of fact, here they round the corner, and you got Sanballat and Tobiah, and they got their little buddies with them, and here it is, Nehemiah 4, 7 through 8 says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Astrodites heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry, very angry, indignant. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. What happens when a bully doesn't get his way? He moves from bickering, fighting, jeering, poking fun of, to now he wants to go toe-to-toe. He wants to draw a blow. But listen to me. Let me ask you a question. Does a bully ever draw a blow straight to the face? No, they want to catch you in the alley. They want to catch you when you're not watching, and they want to jump you, and they want to cause confusion in a, in a dark place, in a location you're not prepared for, and they hope to hit you right upside your head. That's true, isn't it? And that's exactly what Sam Ballot and Tobiah the cowards were going to do too. And I call them cowards because ultimately what I see here is a, is a group of people who they were not getting their way. Because the God of the universe had a greater plan, and they were opposing not only Nehemiah and his work, but in their full focus and their full resolve, they were not getting anywhere. They had no traction. And they got angry, and they got mad, and they despised it. And guess what? When they did that, and Nehemiah heard about the plan, look at verse 9. What did they do? What do you think they did? Just real quick. What do you think they did? Prayed. There you go. That's it. Like, you don't have to be here very long. They prayed in verse 9. And so we prayed to our God. Like that's, like, that's all friends, believers in Christ. When you are facing great opposition, your greatest weapon is your God. And all you got to do is say, Lord, I need your help. Give me full focus, full resolve, full commitment, and help me get back to the work. You deal with them, and I'm going to be your man. I'm going to be your woman. Lord, help me to be on task. And so they prayed. And then they set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So lesson number three is that when you have full focus, full resolve in the midst of conflict and opposition, here's the deal. Your work will require God's strength and the help of others. It requires both. At the end of the day, God did not create you and I to live alone. He created us for community, created us to have needs. And yes, he's not creating us to be super powerful in the sense that all we have to do is call on God and then, hey, we do nothing else with anybody else because we just live in isolation. That's not his best plan. His best plan is is that we would work side by side with full focus, full resolve on a common mission. Ultimately, when opposition comes, we pray to God, we ask for his help, and then we get back to work. And that's what his plan was. And that's exactly what he did. And so they set a guard as protection. Verse 10 says, And in Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much trouble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now here's what I want you to see. When you ultimately have God's full protection, His power and His strength and the help of others, 
I want you to realize that opposition doesn't always just come from without. Sometimes opposition comes from within. Because when you look at verse 10, I want you to put it back up there. I want you to see this. I want you to read it. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. What they're saying is, is hey, like we're, we're failing. Like there's, there's, there's not enough help. And so is there ever enough help? No, there's never enough help. Do we need more help? Absolutely. It reminds me of uh, science class in high school. Y'all remember the group projects you'd get to pair it up with? Three or four people? Y'all remember those? Yes. Uh, maybe it was just bad luck, but I seem to always get paired up with two or three people who never did any work. Now, this is a message for two types of people as well. Because there's some of you that are like, hey, that was me too. And then there's others of you like, dude, you were the fool that did all our work. But isn't it a clever thing? Teachers, they want you to do teamwork, but isn't teamwork so difficult? Because all of us have different ideas, all have different ways of doing it. All of us have different time schedules. Some of us want to hop right on it, and then there's others that want to procrastinate to the last wee hours of the night that it's due. In all, just teamwork is a really difficult thing to accomplish. It's a very hard thing to accomplish. And not only is it a hard thing to accomplish, it's harder to have others involved. And so sometimes we believe the lie that we don't need others' help. But that's not how it is in the church. And friends, here's the deal. I will just submit to you that the church is a really difficult thing. And the reason it's a difficult thing is because it's a bunch of people who have strengthened their own resolve to have a fully devoted, focused relationship with God. And then you've got leaders who are encouraging and asking, and sometimes you feel like telling you what to do. And sometimes you're like, I'm in conflict because I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do those things that way. And listen, having a team is a really challenging thing. And that hasn't changed. But if you know what the mission is and what you're being called to in the face of opposition, you keep moving forward. And you stick together. And here's why. Because there is a real enemy. Matter of fact, look at the enemies. They show up again in Nehemiah chapter 4, 11 and 12. And it says, And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So they haven't gone away and they keep moving forward with their opposition. Look at verse 12. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, said to us ten times, you must return to us. So there's the opposition that can come from within. See, when you're not focused and you're not a team, then you can have naysayers on the outside who say, hey, I'm going to distract you. That's Sanballat, Tobias, and the Amorites, and the Ashdodites, and all of them. But sometimes you get people from the inside that they're fearful, afraid, and sometimes even unwilling to move forward. And when that happens, the work can stop as well. Look at that in verse 12. At the time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times you must return to us. What they've heard is the bully on the playground is going to jump you in the alley. And so there's a group of well-meaning Jews who they come to Nehemiah and they say, hey, listen, there is a great work. We know you're committed to it. We know you're prayed up. We know God's for us. But listen, they're coming, and we think if we just kind of step back for a few days, if we take a little break, if we remove ourselves from this equation, then, then when they come, they, they won't find us here, and there will be no conflict, and then we'll get back to the work. And listen, this is well-meaning Jews who are trying to tell Nehemiah to pull off of building the wall. And friends, here's what I want you to hear. I don't know what your well-meaning intentions were to pull off the wall. 
But Nehemiah makes it very clear in his response that there is no pulling off of the wall when you're called by God to have an eternal focus. Matter of fact, I'm not going to read it for you, but the reason Nehemiah responds the way he does is because in chapter 1, he knows it's God that gave him not only the plans to prosper him, but ultimately to give him a right and claim in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, they build the wall because the people had a mind to work. He had a full focus, a full resolve. In chapter 2, verse 19, they, they spread out and they worked. And you see that. And they were hand in hand, stride by stride. In chapter 4, verse 15, you see in a minute that God's going to frustrate the plans of their enemies. God's going to go before them. Nehemiah knew that. And God's going to strengthen the resolve. And God placed that on Nehemiah's heart as well. Now, the reason I tell you that is because sometimes, if we're not careful, we will pull off the wall and we'll lose focus. And the reason that happens is because we forget that God is working for us. Matter of fact, look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 23. It says, So neither I nor brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Here's what Nehemiah did. He says, listen, I love the fact that y'all came to me, and I love that you have a plan. I've prayed. I'm not sure you did, but we're ready. We're not moving off. And so here's what he does. He goes, hey, guys, it's going to be a long next few weeks. We're not going to sleep much. Matter of fact, if you see what we just read in 23, uh, we're not taking a shower. So listen, I'm not going to say that they smelled good while they were building the wall. But you see that kind of focus and resolve. He goes, listen, there's not, there's not going to be amenities for us for a few weeks. There's not going to be a lot of breaks. Hey, there's not going to be a hot shower. There's not going to be a good meal. So we're, we're building the wall. It's half his height. Sanballat, Tobias, and all his buddies are mad. Yes, I know they're coming. God's going to frustrate their plans. And more than that, we're going to set people to the gates. And not only are we going to set people to the gates, but we're also going to do this. We're going to work with one hand, and we're going to have a weapon in another. And that's really how I see the church, friends. We are to work with one hand, and we have the sword of the Spirit in the other. We are always prepared, doing what God's called us to do and not backing off the task. Doing what God's called us to do and not backing off the task. Why? Because God is for us. I love Romans 8.31. And Paul, as he writes to Rome, he just says, Hey, what then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Man, Nehemiah knew that. Matter of fact, in Nehemiah chapter 5, if you were to flip over there, you could see it. I'll put it for you on the screen. But it says, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for their work. Listen, they were so focused, they didn't even buy land. They didn't take hot showers, and they didn't buy land for themselves. There were no homes being built in Jerusalem. It was just the work on the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, there was no breach left in it. Although up to that time I had not set all the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Hey, come. Hey, let us meet at the, um, together at the Hecapharim in the plain of Oh No. Heck no, I ain't going down to the plain of Oh No. Oh no, I ain't. That's how you remember that. This plan they're devising, they keep going to Nehemiah. He's building a wall. He's not taking a shower. He's not buying land. He's not doing anything. He is, he's got his, his, his mind to do a work, and he's got his people's mind to do a work, and they just keep doing it. When these guys say, hey, come and meet us, we, like we want to share something with you, and they just keep sending, and I love his response. Look what he says in chapter, 
chapter 6, verse 3. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop when I leave it and come down to you? Meaning, who are you to stop my work? I've had meetings with you. You're not on my side. You were fighting against God. You were opposing me. You were seeking to distort my name. You were hailing accusations at me. You are causing other people to be fearful of you. I'm not, and I'm not coming down off the wall. And so I will not meet you in the plane of, oh, no. And here's what I would just say, lesson number four. And that is, when God calls you to a work, friends, don't get distracted. Hey, don't, don't be easily moved. Don't, don't get distracted. And I don't know about you. Have you ever gotten distracted? I mean, don't we live in a society of distractions? One of the things that we asked you guys to join us is in last week was praying. Praying at 520 every day. Do you know my greatest arch nemesis is in praying? Distraction. Like, I can't, I can't pray with a resolve and a focus for one minute without thinking about something to eat. Or worried about some situation. Like, it's just, I've, I struggle to be resolved and undistracted. And so, but friends, that's what I would encourage you to do. Don't be easily moved and don't be distracted. Now, today when you came in, hopefully... You, you got a rock, a stone. Now, every single one of these stones was hand-selected. When I say hand-selected, they were in a pile of rubble, much like Nehemiah would have gone and had to select through and his buddies. And when I say hand-selected, I mean every single one of them was hand-selected and hand-washed. They've been touched at least four times before they got in your hand. They've been prayed over. And the reason why you have stones is not so you can throw them at me, okay? <laughs> it's because as we were thinking about this, and I was thinking and praying for months on this message series, these stones remind me of the work that Nehemiah was a part of. But more than that, these stones remind me of the people I go to church with. Different shapes and sizes, different colors. Some of them almost look perfect. That's a, lot, a lot of us in this room, we want to appear that way, don't we? But there's a lot, like this one right here, been broken in half. I presume to believe that half of this rock is somewhere else, probably like you feel. Some are got blemishes and, I mean, just missing chunks. Some you can see have obviously tossed and tumbled and, and have had a, a few hard knocks. But the reason these rocks are in your hand is because it's a reminder that we are the church. We just look differently. Uh, we think differently sometimes. We come from a variety of backgrounds. We're different shapes, sizes, colors, talents. We have different stories, don't we? Listen, I would have never thought that as I was walking and, and picking rocks that I would ever look at rocks the same way. Again, like I'm leaving after I've selected over 600-something rocks for this morning. And I'm like, I feel like I'm going to leave this one behind. i got to go get that other one, you know, like <laughs> the weirdest thing. Hey, that one, I really like that. Okay, and I'm like, I don't know how many rocks were tossed in just because I'm like, I either was drawn to the way it looked or the shape or the cut of it. 
it just reminded me of you. It reminded me of me. But here's the deal. It's not just a reminder of you and me. But it's also a challenge. That to build a wall with great resolve, it takes every one of our stones. See, we could have you walk out of this and keep the stone and set it as some memorabilia, but that's not the goal. Like, we don't sacrifice to God to keep anything. Like, that's not why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die to give us a stone so that we walk away and we have some sort of memorabilia for ourselves. Oh, yeah, I was baptized on this day. Oh, yes, God saved me and he gave me recovery. Yes, that's great. But the reason that he gave his life for us is ultimately to cause us to take our stone and to make it useful in building something for the kingdom. And so as I challenge you with two things, I want you to think about how this stone that you have in your hand is a reflection of not only who you are in God's hand, not only who he's made you to be, but how you play a part in something bigger than yourself. And so with that, I want to issue two challenges. And the very first one is, I'm asking you to take part in building the wall with me. That your stone is a part of building the wall. That you are a part of the task. And here's what I would just say is this, is that if a handful of you slip out of this room today and you take your stone with you, then it means that we have a place in our wall that's actually missing. And see, that's the temptation, isn't it? Just to stick it, hey, I don't, I don't need to be a part of this activity because there's a lot of us in this room that we're either too cool or we're too indifferent. But at the end of the day, the reason that you were given this stone is because we believe that God has brought you in this moment and this season for this time to be a part of your place on the wall. And you may think, well, my place in the wall is insignificant or my place in the wall is ugly. Or my place in the wall doesn't matter. And here's what I'm just telling you. Yo, your place in the wall does matter. And it's not insignificant. And it is needed. And I get it. You're like, no, 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 no. Mine was in that reap and it's been burned up and it's in the rubble. And I get it. What's preventing us from being a part of the wall is a series of things, maybe. It may be you. And it may be your past. Friends, it may be me. Because you feel like I've placed a stumbling block in front of you at some point. I'm asking genuinely, whatever it is that stands in the way for you being a part, would you work it out? Would you believe the best about me or our leaders so that we could believe the best about you so that we move forward together? If it's your hurt, maybe you feel ashamed. In some ways you go, I... I I was a part, and then I'm not anymore, and I've stepped back, and maybe in some ways you feel guilt. Can we lay that at the cross because Christ died for that? Let's move forward. Listen, we're here, and I think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. I am here with open arms. Anyone who wants to commit themselves to full devotion in Christ, there is a place for you. Right now, in this moment, in this season, and I just want to encourage you to get connected. Make your life count. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says, even the gates of hell will not prevail against this church, I really believe that's in full motion now. There's a real enemy. There's a real adversary. He jeers. He pokes. He prods. He wants to find you in a dark, isolated alley. He wants to lie to you. He wants to shame you, ridicule you. He wants you to live uh, in conflict with others. He does not want you to have life and joy and peace. And if he can keep you there, then he wins. And listen, friends, he shouldn't keep you there.
His name is not Tobiah or Sanballat. His name is Satan. He's a real enemy. He wants to still kill and destroy you and your family. And friends, we can't let him. So here's my call. To be a part of the wall means you get connected to the wall. How do you do that? Full devotion. Go all in for Christ. Going all in for Christ. Hey, become a member of our church. Hey, restore your membership in our church. Get connected to someone in community. Say, hey, I'll, I'll join a journey group. Tell me when. Hey, you can go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash events and you can join already. You can just say, I'll be there. That's a great way to move forward. Hey, right now on our website, if you go to stonepointchurch.com, there is a connect tab. Under the connect tab, there is a serve tab. Right now, I counted up this morning, we have over 65 spots in our church right now where there is no one serving that we need somebody serving in the wall. 65 spots that we have needs right now. From kids ministry to student ministry to parking to greeting to hospitality to region ministry to writing devotionals, all types of different ministries from production team, worship team. There's so many places that you can be a part of the wall. Would you be a part of the wall? Part of the wall is redeeming what's been broken. Go have a conversation. Restore conflict. Seek forgiveness. Restore everything. That's a great way for you to get connected. And you might ask yourself, what else? Pray with us every day at 5.20 p.m. God, would you make your ambassador more like you? And would I make an appeal to a broken world for you? Pray that. And then challenge number two, before I give it, I want to read something. I'm going to put it for you up on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. I skipped over it on purpose, but I want you to see it. Nehemiah said, and I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, hey, do not be afraid of them. Don't back down. Remember the Lord. He is great. He is awesome. Friends, we have a great and awesome God. And then look what he says next. And you fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your home. Why are we a part of the wall? Listen, it is not for me. May God increase and may I decrease. Listen, it is not about doubling our church in size. It's not about, hey, how do we grow two campuses? It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with there are broken communities right now in which we live in. We have friends that have walked away from the church. We have friends that do not want anything to do with the hypocrisy in the church. We have friends who they need the Lord so desperately that if they had the hope that you and I have in Christ, their marriages would look different. There is restoration possible. God can take their life, a stone, and He can use it to something greater if we will tell them the story. And who is it that you're fighting for? And what is the battle that you're fighting? Because that's what He's calling us to. And so here's challenge number two. Would you please stand in the gap for someone besides you? Like just for once, like for once in 20 years of ministry, could we have every member of our church, every person in this room, could we at one time just no longer make something about us? It's not about what we have to offer you or you have to offer. Like, Lord, I'm just yours. Great and awesome are you, God. Great is your name and you are worthy to be praised. You are our Savior and our refuge. This week I've just been praying through the Psalms as I pray. God, you are mighty to save. You are the deliverer. You're my strong tower. 
You are, you are the help for the weak. You are the one who helps when the poor are oppressed. You are our salvation. Could you imagine we walked out with that heartbeat? It happens when we are a part of the wall. See, God didn't just give us stones. You know what else God gave us? He gave us this tree called the sequoias. You might not know much about sequoias, to be real honest with you. I didn't either. I actually picked up a book written by a friend of mine, uh, friends of mine, Jennifer and Dwight Stoltzfus, and they wrote a book called Beloved and just talked about the church. One of the things they talked about was the sequoia tree. And the sequoia tree is only found really in one place of, of the world, and it's in the Sierra Nevada. And these trees can grow upwards to 200, 275 foot tall as the largest one. Uh, matter of fact, the largest tree in the world right now is, is in Sequoia National Park, and it's called General Sherman. It's about 275 uh, foot tall. It, its mass is the largest, although there are taller trees, but it takes up 52,500 cubic feet. Its bark is between one to two foot thick. And the reason why is because when the fire comes, it can resist it. Interesting thing, though. The fire actually helps the sequoia tree reproduce. This tree that's 2,200 to 2,700 years old needs to be tested. It needs to be oppressed to grow. And then what's crazy about the sequoia tree is the sequoia tree is inhabiting a, a really rocked region. Its roots do not grow super deep. Matter of fact, for a 275-foot tall tree, the roots might be a maximum of 12 to 14 foot. It has no taproot, but its roots will spread out. And it's spread out over a course of about an acre. One tree. But here's the cool thing. Like these rocks and how they symbolize us, the sequoia tree does too. Right in creation, a sequoia tree holds itself because it takes its roots and as it shoots it out across an acre, it grabs every sequoia tree in the area and they lock themselves together and they intertwine. And they resist strong winds, pestilence, disease, even fire because they're together. And friends, my challenge is, is that we would be better together. One of the things that I want you to do in a few moments, though, is to think, who do I need to stand in the gap for? See, all of us have somebody at work, or we have a neighbor, or we have a friend, that they need Jesus Christ. They need the hope of the world. They don't know it. You've tried to convince them. They need a church home. They need a place to belong. Because reality is, friends, if you don't have a church home, it means you're without a family. It makes you an orphan. If you're not a part of the flock, the danger of that is that it makes you at risk to predators. See, if you're not locked in with another sequoia tree, then what it means is that you're posed to be at risk when the winds get high. And so these people need that, just like you and I need that. In a few moments, we're about to pray. And as we pray, what I want you to do is I want you to ask God to put one name on your heart. One name of someone who you need to invite to be a part of a journey with you. And then I'm going to ask you to, a few moments to come as our band leads us. And I'm going to ask that you would write that name on this rock. 
and then I want you to put it in one of the buckets across the room. Now, maybe you didn't get a rock when you came in. That's fine. You can find your way to one of these tables. These tables have some extra rocks. There's markers here. And as they play, you sing and you reflect. You rejoice and you praise God all the same time. It's like, Lord, make my heart heavy for people who need you. Lord, help me rejoice because I have you. Lord, help me sing because great and awesome are you, O oh God. But Lord, help me to fight for my brothers and sisters, for my brother and my mother, for my uncle and for my coworker. Because at the end of the day, Lord, you put me here, 5.20 p.m., as your ambassador. And Lord, you are making your appeal through me. Hey, you don't believe that? Just hours before Jesus dies in his high priestly prayer, he prays for his disciples. Well, let me show you a verse. In, in John chapter th- uh, 17, let me show you verse 20. Let's go to verse 20, boys. I do not ask for these things only. In context, he'd ask for some things for the disciples, that they would know the word, that they would, that they would deal with opposition, that they would know God is, has sent them in the world. He, he says, I pray that they know that. But then in verse 20, he says, Hey, I don't ask for these only, but I also, also ask for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's what he says, as he's about to prepare to be handed over, betrayed by his own friend Judas, he goes, Lord, I pray that just as you are in me and I in you and I and in them, the apostles, as they go forth and as they share the message, I pray that anybody is in them is also in me and me and them and you and them and you and me. And the way that they deal with one another, Lord, I pray that they would be one, is what he says, verse 21, just as you, Father, and I are one is the point. And then he says, so that, so that, and there it is, the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus, hours before he's handed over, and hours before his death, his prayers for the church. He's going, the way that you deal and relate one another impacts how the world sees the church. And friends, if we aren't on the same page building the wall, why do you think that anybody else would want to join us? And so this is serious, isn't it? May we be a part of the wall. And so in a few moments, as you bring your stone, you are symbolizing, Lord, I want to be a part of the wall. Lord, I'm going to stand in the gap. And Lord, there's somebody I'm standing in the gap for. And you're going to write their name down. And you're going to place in the bucket. And then here's what you're going to see next weekend when you come in. And next weekend, my friends, is going to be fantastic. It's going to be great. You think the last two weeks have been good? You're like, oh, yeah. No, next week's going to be fantastic. Awesome. You do not want to miss it. And it would be a great week to bring a friend. Maybe this friend. But as you put this in the bucket, next week when you come to this campus, you're going to see every stone. And they're going to be in one of our flower beds. And it's going to be a reminder to us for the next year of how many people we're praying for. And when you see Matt's name on there, or you see Ryan's name on there, hey, don't be surprised, because that's who we're praying for. And we're, we're going to be praying until Matt and Ryan show up, and God does a work in their heart. That's how that works. Now, as you write, I'm going to ask that you would just write their first name and their last initial. And then we pray that God would make us of one accord.
So we're going to sing together, and then we're going to put a bow tie on at the very end. We're going to pray together as we walk out of this place. So our band comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, for your message. Thank you for these stones and how they are a representation of the church. Thank you, Lord, for other things in creation like sequoias and sheep. Like, Lord, just every time we turn around, you have a new metaphor, a new way to remind us who we are in you and why we need each other. Lord, would you call us to a greater work? Would you call us to be a part of your plan? And would you help us to see how we can be a part of it? We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for the work you've called us to. And I pray that we are like Nehemiah. We don't come down because we, are, we got our hand to a good work. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.